Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. That was on me. <clears throat> Does that mean you've been listening to me sing back there? Has my singing been coming through? Y'all didn't hear it, right? Oh, man. The great thing about the message today is that it's all about weakness. And so it would have been sort of apropos. Okay, my name's Will. Brad is in, in there's going to be plenty of other weak stuff. Don't worry, there is no, there's no lack. Um, Brad is in India right now, so I get the privilege of opening up the word with you today. If you would go ahead and flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's where we're going to start. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. T- today's message is called Saving and Sustaining Grace. And if you have a pew Bible, or uh, not a pew, we have chairs. If you have a little chair Bible, it'll probably be on page 750. 53 or 961. While you guys are flipping there, let me just give you a real quick church plant update. The last time I was up here, we were praying for a place and we were praying for people and God is good and he is faithful and that's just who he is. And so uh, we've got a place now. Uh, we're, we're still looking. It's a prayer request, but the good news is we have a place. There's a school in Midland, Harris County, right in between J.R. Allen and Veterans Parkway. It's called Pine Ridge Elementary School. And they have given us a green light. So we have a space, we have kid space, we have parking spaces. It's all wonderful. Praise God. Um, and then the second thing uh, when I was up here uh, talking was that God would send the right people. We're planting through a network called Acts 29. And Acts 29 uh, just recommends for health that you plant with at least 45 adults. And as of last Wednesday, we had that and a little bit more. So praise God. We got a great, yeah, right? I like it when we clap. Yeah, Tyler had to coax it, but we're going to be, we're going to be interactional this morning. So, um, so that's a huge thing. Um, and then I, I, here, here would kind of be, as we pray going forward, we would love to have a place that we could meet at more than three hours on a Sunday morning. And there's some traction moving in that direction, but you can be praying uh, for that. And then also over the next four months or so, as this community of believers is gathering together, we just want it to be sweet, honest, real, rugged community where we're loving each other and showing each other grace and holding each other accountable as God builds this body um, to to create another faithful gospel preaching church in our city. So so be praying for us. But yeah, God's good. God's real good. All right, so this morning, transitioning back in, we're going to be looking at saving and sustaining grace. And we're going to do that through uh, sort of a biography of Paul. But if you don't like the word biography and that makes you feel like checking your phone or getting a quick nap, we'll just call it story time. And I'll lay out the rug. And that's what children call it. And it's all the exact same thing. But This morning, we're going to be talking about two forms of grace, saving grace and sustaining grace. Now, when it comes to saving grace, we're not going to spend as much time on that because, to be quite honest with you, if you've been here once or twice, saving grace, if you grew up in the South, for most of us, saving grace is something that we understand pretty well. We're still going to hit it. We got to. And and we should, but we're going to spend the majority of our time on a sustaining grace. And what I mean by that is a future grace, a grace that is not just in our past, but a grace that is real in our present and a grace that we should even be asking God for in our future. So, So that's my hope as we look at the life of Paul. Let's pray together and then we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you 
for this morning. Um, thank you for everybody who's in this room. I, I just simply want to thank you for grace. I want to thank you for the free gift that when we say grace, we think of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I, I thank you that it was something that we could not earn, but something that was freely given to us. And in that free gift, without expectation, is grace. But Father, I pray that we would realize that every moment of every day, every believer is called not just to remember the work of Christ, but to feast on the grace that is given to us in the moment and also to pray for and hope for and expect a grace that is waiting for us in the moment to come. And so Lord, I I just pray that we would greatly enjoy feasting on your word as you call us into a grace that sustains us all of our days. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen. Amen. All right, guys, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. So here's what we're going to do. Eyes up for just a minute if you put them down. So Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Corinthians are two of those. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians for a moment. We're going to jump back to the book of Acts, and we're going to finish in 2 Corinthians. And basically, I'm staying away from the book of Romans, which is what I was asked to do by my senior pastor. Okay? We get one verse out of Romans this morning, and he can't do anything about it. But it is not my primary text. All right, so 1 Corinthians 15, 3, diving into Paul, who is writing a letter to believers in the city of Corinth. And here's what he says. For I delivered to you as of first importance, this is the most important thing, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And now he's going to go on and he's going to point to people who saw this grace lived out. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his half-brother, then to all the apostles. And then it's as though Paul stops and looks inward and says, last of all, as to one untimely born, unexpected, unmerited, and undeserved, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy even to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. All right, so, so that is Paul writing a letter to a group of believers in a church that he started in the city of Corinth. But that's not where Paul started. Most of us realize this. Flip back in your Bibles a little bit to the book of Acts chapter 7. When we get to the book of Acts, we get to see who Paul really was. Now, many of you know this, but I hope you'll be willing to look at Paul's life maybe with new eyes this morning. And if you just want an amazing chapter of somebody just giving an awesome sermon about God's grace over the course of human history, Acts chapter 7 is where you go. Does anybody know who the first Christian martyr was? The first guy to give his life? Stephen, right? Okay. And so Stephen in Acts chapter 7 gives this sort of dialogue of the grace of God unfolded in history. Now, as he continues on, the people that he's talking to don't want to hear it. They don't want anything to do with this Jesus guy. 
And so he continues and he continues. And finally he looks at him and he says, you stiff-necked, like hard-hearted people, why do you always resist the Spirit of God? And in very mature fashion, they put their fingers in their ears and they go, la, 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 la. That's true. It's in the text. And then they run at him and they, they carry him out to stone him. And that's where we pick up in chapter 7 of Acts, verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And and typically the way stoning would have worked is you would have dug a hole in the ground. You would have put the person in it, not all the way, but enough so that you could put stones around them so that they were stuck. Natural inclination. We used to have rock fights at church. That makes me feel old, right? Like that's what we did. We had this gravel outside of the youth room. And when I was a student, before or after youth, we would pick up rocks and try to hit each other with them. We were not a very bright crew, I guess. All right? And that was our game. And the game lasted as long as until somebody caught one in the face, usually in the eye, and then that was it. And the mom showed up, and we were like, we, we repented. We will never do it again. And then next week, right? There's still gravel. We got nothing to do. All right, so that's what we did. But when, in a situation like stoning like this, your natural inclination is to run away. But I bring this up because we find out that Stephen just stands and bears it. Whereas usually you would be held in place and they would intentionally use smaller rocks so that the lights don't go out quickly because this was meant to be a torturous way of death. Stephen stands and he takes it. And we see this as I continue reading. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This Saul will become Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, which meant... He had been standing. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In very Christ-like fashion. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And as Stephen utters this prayer, likely through a a babbling, blood-filled mouth, with dust and bruises and cuts on his body, that prayer went up into the heavens. And God sent it back down as grace to the very one who had looked at Stephen and said, kill him. Because we continue to read about Saul. You see, we've already read about him once, and now we read about him again. Look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 8. And Saul approved his execution. He stands by. He's nodding his head. He doesn't even get his hands dirty. And we go on and we realize that that causes a persecution that spreads the gospel. And then pick up here in verse 3. But Saul, this wording is crazy. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. And in other texts, we realize synagogue after synagogue, church after church. Imagine the doors busting open and somebody coming in. And he dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. Saul walks in grabs men from their homes and pulls them into prison. Their wives don't know if they're ever going to see him again. Their children don't know if they're ever going to see their papa again. There's no money coming into the family. Poverty, disease, difficulty. That's one family. And then he does it to another and then to another. And he pulls a wife from this one. And maybe he pulls a husband and a wife from another one. And he orphans those children. Saul ravaged the church. That's who he was. That was his life. That was his identity. But God doesn't leave him there because flip to Acts chapter 22 verse 6. As Stephen, through blood, cried out and said, God, don't hold this sin against him. God hears his prayer. And he sends it back down in the form of grace. And in Acts chapter 22 verse 6, we hear Saul's grace 
story. Now, let me just pause and everybody back back out. Remember, we're looking at grace in two of its forms this morning. One is saving grace. That's what we're talking about right now. We are about to see the saving grace of God brought about through a, a blood let out prayer brought down in grace into Saul's life. In a moment, we're going to see it turn into sustaining grace. But let's make sure we keep the categories right in our head. Let me tell you why I'm being so specific with this. You're good at one of them and you're not at the other. That's why. Most of us hear the word grace and we're like, I know what grace is, right? Like amazing grace, right? I get it. Like I've been talking about grace my whole life. By the grace of God, it is a free gift. It's something I could not deserve. The problem is so many of us think of grace as just something we reach back into our history for that it affects our ability to live for Christ today. And so I want to make sure that I'm parsing those things out. Does that make sense? Are y'all tracking with me on this? So let's look at saving grace in Paul's life. Verse 6. Paul's on his way to Damascus. Why? Doing what he does. Hating on Christians. Ripping up the body of Christ. Verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the, one, of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything that you are appointed to do. Drop all the way down to verse 19. So God saves Saul turns him into Paul, and puts him on mission. But Paul wants something from God. And every one of us could understand what he wants. Check out verse 19. This is Paul speaking. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. I want you to notice two things. I want you to notice that one of the first things that Saul does when he hears the voice of Christ is he says, who are you? And in in, an appropriate way, Jesus says, who am I? I'm the one whose body you're ravaging. Who am I? I'm the one who holds your life in my hand. Who am I? I'm the one that you heard Stephen pray to for the saving of your soul that you didn't even know needed to be saved. That's who I am. And his life has changed. But then he asks something. He says, is there any way that I can go somewhere else? Because every time I go to this synagogue or that synagogue, every time that I would go here or there, I would see the face of the wife whose life I wrecked. I would see the children who long for their father who's not coming home. I I, I, I would see the families whose lives have been pushed into the dirt, and they would look at me as the one who did that to them. God, I I, I can't go to those people. I can't bear it. And God says, then I will send you on mission to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what he does. Okay, I'm going to go into like history mode now. We're going to pull down a map. All right, tech team, you ready? I gave you all a ton of stuff. Um, Give me the map that's in color first. So, Perfect. Okay, so God sends Paul to the Gentiles. And what that basically means is he sent him all around the Mediterranean to different cities and different places, and he begins establishing churches. Now, the church we're going to be talking about is, anybody got a guess? 
Corinth, right? Okay, so we're going to begin and end there. So we're going to start in Corinth. So I don't have a little laser pointer, but if you look dead center in the map, you see where Corinth is, right? Everybody see that? Now, Corinth is an incredible city. It's an incredible city because of where it is positioned geographically. So in case any of you missed history, like ever, Rome was sort of a big deal back in the day. All right, And Rome is way over there to the left. So when Rome wanted to get any of their goods, any of their products, any of their merchants wanted to get stuff to the other side of the Mediterranean, they had two choices. I'm going to mispronounce a word now, and that is Peloponnese, I think. And that is the waterway that you would go through if you came down and went, you see where it says Achaia? If you went under Corinth. But the problem was the, the waters were so tumultuous that people could lose their cargo, their boat, their very lives. And so instead, they would go to the city of Corinth. Why? Because Corinth was a city between two ports on a vocabulary word for you today, isthmus. Who knows what an isthmus is? Who could tell me what an isthmus is? Okay, yes. So an isthmus is a small piece of land that connects two larger pieces of land that's surrounded by body on all side, uh, uh, body of water on all sides. So sailors had two choices, all right? They could either go under that land mass and lose their cargo, their ship, or their lives, or they could pull into Corinth and go three miles. That's it, to bypass that entire way. But Corinth, Corinthians were smart, man. They were like, oh, so you need us? Cool, cool, cool. Taxes and tariffs, right? Okay, so you pull up into port number west, and we're like, hey, of course you can go three miles and grab a different boat. Or if it's small enough, maybe you can carry it. And then you can just hop back on the water. It'll be super safe. You'll get to say hey to your wife in a month or so when you get back. It's going to be great. It's just going to cost you a lot of money. And they're like, all right. And they get to port number east. And port number east is like, what's up? We're so glad you're here. But if you want to get in that boat and take that stuff, you're going to need to give us money. And then the dude does. He comes back the next way. And they're like, Good to see you again. Guess what? We still accept taxes. And, and so Corinth was this incredibly wealthy, you're going to start feeling conviction hopefully in a moment, incredibly wealthy country. And because it was an incredibly wealthy country, pe country, city, people flocked to the city of Corinth. And because people flocked to the city of Corinth and there was a great deal of wealth, there was a great deal of comfort and ease and lots of different ideas. Starting to sound familiar? Okay? And so Paul sees this, and God sends him to this group of people that are very well-funded and very comfortable, that accept lots of different ideas, and Paul sets up shop. He lives there for a year and a half with Aquila and Priscilla. Now, most of the places he went, he would stay for a number of weeks, but here he beds down for a year and a half because it is so strategic. Most of us understand moralism. I was talking to a, a buddy of mine who's a, a church planner in uh, Peachtree City, Atlanta, South Atlanta. And he was saying, man, if all God needed me to do is preach against moralism, that you're not good enough and you're not strong enough and you're not smart enough and you can't earn it, he was like, I could do that in spades. And to be honest with you, that would be very easy. I would probably even have to remind myself to pray because telling people they're not good enough, I can do that. And the reality of it is most of us in this room understand moralism. He said, but it was when God called me to Peachtree City, the home of 100-mile golf cart paths that connect neighborhoods and supermarkets and schools with all, all of the upper middle class, upper class whatevers. He was like, now I'm not dealing with moralism only. I'm dealing with comfortism. You know how hard it is to tell people who are comfortable that this is what God's word says? Do you know how difficult that is? 
And so, look, look let, let's just like recognize the elephant in the room. Most of us in this room are pretty comfortable. And when Paul goes to Corinth, he sees it as an opportunity to say, the life of Christ is one of suffering and struggle and strife, and it's better. And that's what we need to hear this morning as a people who are easily pulled into comfort. So he works with uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Oh, I have another map, but you don't need to show it anymore. You can if you want to. It just shows the isthmus. Go ahead and show it. There it is. You see that little bitty land bridge with the dot? That's three miles across. So they would come in and then they would go across. Okay, there's the other map. Sorry about that. Forgot about it. Moving on. So he worked there and he used goat skins as a tent maker. So he made tents and awnings because the Mediterranean would get pretty warm. The sun would come out. So everybody was like, need a little shade over my head. So that's what Paul does. And then from there, he starts moving it. He was preaching in a synagogue. He got kicked out. The Jews didn't want him there. So he goes next door to this dude named Justice's house. And he starts preaching there. And that's what he does for a year and a half. And then he's sent out. And he continues going. And he's planting church. And he's planting church. And he's planting church. But he catches word that the Corinthians are not doing well. They've started to rebel from his teaching. They've started to, to go after other things. And so we hear that, that he writes back to them. In fact, there are some things we don't have. There's a tearful letter that we don't have. But we do have 1 Corinthians. So everybody go back to where we started this morning. 1 Corinthians 15.3. And this is where what we started with sits in the grand history of Paul. Now we're going to start moving from saving grace to this sustaining grace as Paul's mission for the Corinthians unfolds. <clears throat> I'm going to start in verse 8. So Paul, looking at himself, he says, Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Positional grace. Because of the grace of God in Acts chapter 8 to me, because of what God did, I am positionally right with him. I can look back in my past and I can cling to the grace that God showed me when he knocked me off my horse and he blinded me. I can hold on to that as positional grace. I am who I am and who I am is a man who loves Jesus and I used to persecute him. But it doesn't stop. It keeps going. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace. His free gift to me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Any of who? The people he just listed. Cephas, right? And James, Jesus' half-brother, the 500 people who followed him, the disciples, the apostles. He looks back and he says, it almost makes sense for them to believe in Christ. They walked with him. They lived with him. They were in the same family as him. It makes sense for them to believe in him. But me, the guy who was who is, who is killing the believers and pulling them away? Not me. And it makes me think of this, this room. There's a very fair chance that a number of people in this room are not believers. And they walk into a room like this and they look around and they say, it makes sense for all of the rest of you. You look right and you dress right. And when Will says 1 Corinthians, you don't have to go to the table of contents. You know where to go. You know the right lingo. Grace be with you, brother. I don't know how to say stuff like that. And, and, and then we can move to, to another group of people, to young believers who look around regardless of age, whether you're young or whether you're old, and you're young in the faith, and you look around and you're like, it makes sense for you to be here, but I'm struggling because I don't have scripture memorized, or I don't know how to pray the way that you pray. I don't even understand what community and discipleship is. 
it makes sense for you to be here. And then you have older Christians who have been in the faith for a long time. And they look at younger Christians and they say, you've got so much energy and you've got so much zeal. Why don't I have that? It makes sense for you to be receiving today, but not me. My, my spiritual life has been on cruise control for a decade. Not me. And Paul would walk through that door. And just as all of those people, all of us, feel like the least of these, he would come in and he would feel like the least. And it's because he felt like the least that God lifted him to greatness. And the same thing is true of us. The beautiful thing about the grace of God is that it's not just positional. It's not just past tense. It is a present empowering force. Check, check out what he says here uh, halfway through verse 10. I worked harder than any of them, any of the people that made sense for them to pursue God, though it was not I, but. And you would think that he would say something like, but the, the incredible history that I have in the sense that I memorized the Bible as a Pharisee. I've got the foundation. So God used my foundation and he worked. You might even think he would say, but on the contrary, or is it, hang on, let me find it. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the Spirit of God. And certainly Paul would agree with that, that it's the Holy Spirit that causes him to work. But he doesn't even say that. What does he say? He says grace. The thing that sustains me, the thing that has my position, is the very thing that pushes me. And so when, when we think of a saving grace and we move to a sustaining grace, I don't want you to think of sustaining as in like static. I, I want you to think of it like sustenance. We feast on grace. Every moment of every day, every hour, every circumstance, we as believers must feast on the grace of God. If I make it to the end of this sermon, if you, some of y'all are already tired, if you make it to the end of this sermon, it's grace that sustains us. Does that make sense? What in anything but grace? And it, okay, if this isn't clicking for you yet, if, you, if you're not hitting 100% on understanding, that's okay. You will. How does grace, a gift that was already given, affect me today? But then beyond that, how do I seek it, go after it, and feast on it today? Because so many of us grew up thinking of grace as a past tense thing primarily, it, it's hard for us to get there. And so you would say, no, Will, I get it. Right? It's not just past tense because God's grace is new. What? Every morning. See, well, I know that. It's new every morning. Grace is a daily, daily thing. Yes, but most of us, when we think of that, are thinking about it like this. Come what may, whatever happens, I know that God has me because his grace is new for me every morning. So it doesn't matter how difficult this circumstance or what happens with my job or what happens in my marriage or what happens in school or what happens with this. You know what? I know that God has me. And that's true but you're clinging backwards. And that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But you're missing out on the being able to go forward. Here's how most of us think about grace in the present and grace in the future. It's when you ask somebody to show you grace. So last night, Karen Ann asked me to clean the toilets at our house. All right? It's true. And so I'm not, that's great, whatever. So I get the little Clorox wipes and I open them. And they've got the fun little thing, so it, it's easy to tear off. So I tear off one. I go to boy toilet, and I go, wiki, wiki, done. Toss it, girl toilet, wiki, wiki, done. My toilet, wiki, wiki, done. About eight hours pass. My wife's like, hey, um, I, 
I thought you said you would clean the toilets. I was like, I did. They're like spotless. And she was like, well, I lifted one of the lids. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. So my definition of cleaning the toilet and your definition of cleaning the toilet are not the same. One of us is wrong. Probably me, okay? And in that moment, what do I say to my wife? Show me grace, right? Can you show me grace? Can this not be something that like tanks our whole night? Can this not be something that enters into an argument that then like uh, snowballs into us talking about finances in some way, right? Like, is, <laughs> is it, y'all deal with finances. Awesome, because the Corinthians did too. All right, like, is there some way that you could just show me grace? That's how most of you think of present grace. But here's the deal. You're actually asking them for grace from the past. Think about it. I'm asking my wife to show me grace for something that has already happened. What I'm talking about in Scripture is that that is true and that this is true, but that there is something else that is true about grace, and that is that it goes forward. That is that we can, you now can ask God to give you the grace you're going to need not to rip your hair out at lunch today. That's a good prayer. You can ask God and expect God to give you the grace that you need in any of the weaknesses, foibles, and failures that you have in your life. And he is happy to do so because when he does, when you ask, it puts on display his glory and his power. Going back to Corinth, Paul writes to him, and, and, and basically it, it all boils down to they had a really rough relationship after he left. He goes back and he visits them, and the visit goes bad, so he leaves. He writes them a tearful letter, and they begin to repent. They begin to believe again in the things that they should have believed in again. And now he begins to write a letter to the Corinthians called Second Corinthians. And when he writes to them, he's really accomplishing two things. One, he's saying, our relationship, even though it's been a struggle in the past, we're good, guys. But I also want to talk to you about why our relationship went south in the first place. And the reason that it went south is because of these people in the church that Paul refers to as the super apostles. All right, so everybody go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. And this is where we're going to kind of finish up for the day. It's camping in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. I just want you to notice this. I love this about Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1. He's telling you ahead of time. I'm about to do something sort of foolish. I'm going to explain why it's foolish, and I'm going to explain why it's worth it, but I'm just putting my hands up saying I'm going to do something foolish. And here's, here's how he says it. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Jump all the way down to verse 21, halfway through. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, right? Like he jumps out of his letter to say, I'm, I, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of. So what's happening here? Hang on, let me, let me find, I just lost my, my spot. Okay, I got it. 2 Corinthians 11.5, that's what I was looking for. Okay, he writes to them and he says, I'm gonna be foolish, the beginning, foolish on the end. Verse five, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. So what had happened was these super apostles come in. And as they come in, y'all are like surprised that it's raining. Everybody's wondering if their windows are up right now. It's like spring, right? This is a thing. All right, so 
Rain's coming. Here we go. We're going to continue preaching in the rain. Is everybody ready for that? So, so these super apostles come into the church in Corinth, but they're not like Paul. They're a lot different than Paul. They wear really nice clothes. Do you remember what Paul's job was? He sat in the sun dealing with nasty goat skins, making awnings for the campers of the people in Corinth. That was Paul. But these guys, no, 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 manual labor, that's not their deal. No. Paul works. He stroke, the dude doesn't even have a home. He's like a college student crashing on a couch for a year and a half. And Aquila and Priscilla are like, no, we're cool with that, right? Like that's impressive work on their part. And they were both tent makers as well. And so these super apostles who look so good and sound so good. And this is the other thing that I find amazing. The Bible says Paul wasn't a good speaker. You know how cool that is? Paul was not a good speaker. He's going to say it about himself in a minute. And so these super apostles that are really eloquent and like super slick, they slide up into the mix. And guess what they do want that Paul did not want? They wanted their golf cart, right? And so they ask for money. But it almost like works in their advantage because as they're asking for money, they're not doing manual labor. And it comes across like, hey, if Paul really was a servant of God, he would have nice clothes, he would have nice things, and he would have comfort. And Paul says, I'm not having any of that. Because here's the deal. If I can live my life without an honorable profession, if I can live my life without prestige, without influence, I can't even speak well in public. I don't have a home. I don't have comforts. I don't have any of that stuff. When you look at me and you see joy and you see hope, you know that it has to come from something that you don't have. That's his message to the Corinthians. How many of us have our hope bound up in things other than Jesus? How many of us listen to this? Because here's the thing. Imagine a bow tie. I've never worn one. I can't tie them. Imagine a bow tie. On the one side, you have this like expanding fabric going one way. Then you have an expanding fabric on the other. And in the middle, you've got a knot. That is how grace works. On one side, you have the expanding reality of human weakness and failure. If there's one thing we don't have a bottom to of the pit, it's our ability to sin. It's our ability to be weak, and it's our ability to fail. And on the other side, you have the incredible power of God. And when the power of God slams into the weakness, not the proud, not the righteous, Jesus didn't come for those, but when the power of God slams into the weakness of man, grace is born out of that. That's what grace is. So he goes to these super apostles and he says, you want to trust in these guys? They're closed. They're public speaking. Paul pulls out his college transcript. This is why he says, I'm going to be a little foolish. All right. And here's what he says. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 21. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 21. Halfway down. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast, boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Check this out. I'm a better one. And then he has to jump back in. I'm talking like a madman. All right? With far greater labor, far greater labor, labors, far more imprisonments, 
with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, in danger at sea. I can go on and on and on and on and on. And Paul pulls out his credentials and he says, you want to talk about super apostles? They say they know the word. I memorize the word. They say that they know stuff about Christ. I talk to him. I've been given visions about him. I'm going to skip over this for the sake of time, but it even goes on in Corinthians for Paul to say, God had blessed me with so much revelation that he sent, quote, a messenger of Satan. This is the thorn in the flesh that we refer to, to keep me from being conceited. He was so full of everything that anyone should want to be full of that God used evil in his divine providence and sovereignty to clasp down on Paul. Why? Flip over. Because of this. Verse 9 of chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Why? Because God said to me, my grace, not was, my grace is, is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is present and future grace. So he boasts in his weakness so that the power of Christ would rest on him. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ would sit on him. For the sake of Christ then, eyes up for just one minute, he says these words to a people that are filled with things and comforts. He says, for the sake of Christ, for the glory of his name, I will be weak. Why? Because I am content. Content. I am content. I have learned the secret of being content. Paul says to people who have everything and he has goat skins, I am content with weakness and not the strength of the super apostles. I'm content with insults, not having a great name. I'm content with hardships and persecutions, not ease and a calendar that always fits and makes sense. I'm content with calamity, not expecting that everything is going to go perfectly for me just because I began believing in Christ. Why? Because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. This isn't past tense. Our love for people today Today, your love for the person next to you, behind you, the person who's going to hop in the car with you, is rooted in the grace of God today. Let me, let me play out how that works. Let's say I have a horrible day at work. Counseling goes wrong. Somebody decides instead of trusting in Christ, they're not. They continue in some relationship or something that's just going to wreck their lives and take them, take them down into the depths of Sheol and death and, and, death and hell itself. And I get home... And, and I pull in, and here's what I want. I want to open the door, and my wife be like, I've got fresh baked cookies, Will. And not only that, I slightly burned them just the way you like. Or maybe she doesn't have time, right? Let's be realistic. So she's just got a bag of beef jerky and some barbecue sunflower seeds. And she's like, I, I, I thought you may have had a bad day, so I've got this. All of my children are standing in descending order to give me a hug, right? And to tell me about their day and how God's been good and what Bible verse they're working on. But that's not what happens, right? I go to pull into the car and the dog jumps in front of me and I slam on the brakes. I'm like, what was that? And then I get out of the car and I open the door. No 
wife, can't find her anywhere, but you know what I do see? A shoe fly right past my head. As soon as that happens, a half-naked kid runs in front of me, and on his back is a red mark, and I'm just trying to size up which kid's hand fits that red mark so that I can go into discipline mode there. As soon as that happens, I step in dog poo, and then I make it into the room, and my wife's like, ah, and I'm like, this is not what I wanted. And I turned to God in that moment. We turned to God in that moment because grace is not just past tense. It is present tense and it's future tense. And in that moment, I say what so many of us say so many times in a given day. But instead of trusting in the grace of God, we run to other things. And I say, God, I don't have it. I don't, I, I don't have the patience. I don't have the energy. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't have the anything to deal with this. I can't do this, God. And he says, my son... I know my grace is perfected in your weakness. Let me be strong for you. And then I can be the dad and the father, the husband that God has called me to be out of my weakness. Why are we scared of our weaknesses? As Christians, our, our weaknesses are the fuel for the greatness that God would call us to. Or maybe it's not... That for you, maybe it's pulling into your parking place at work. You don't even get the one you're supposed to. Somebody took it, so you're like eight down. And you pull in, and you were like all prepped up, and you had your Jesus music on, because you know that as soon as you walk in, there's an employee there that just wants to watch you fail. Could be your boss, could be a fellow coworker. And you start to get out, and your hand hits the handle, and you're just like, I can't do this. I know that I've got to provide for my family. I know that I've got to do these things, but God, I can't do this. And God says, I know, my son. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Now go in my grace and in my strength. Or maybe you wake up in the morning and you don't even want to get out of bed. The last thing that you want to hear is eh, 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 of the alarm. And it's not just because somebody figured out the most annoying sound in the world and marketed it to every single alarm clock. It's because you'd rather be asleep than awake. You'd rather be unconscious, not dealing with your life and your circumstances, your depression, your anxiety, and everything else, and you just don't want to get out of I can't even get to the shower. How am I supposed to open my Bible? How am I supposed to hit the floor in prayer? I can't even get out of bed. And the Spirit of God says, I know, daughter, because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. We ought not be scared of our weaknesses. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, again. <clears throat> but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you live in the resting power of the grace of Christ daily? When those things happen in that moment, we can either choose to search for selfish satisfaction like the Corinthians and every person in a comfort-driven culture does. Or we can go to God and ask him for the gift of grace in that moment. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 puts it this way. I just want you to realize how available this is to you if you're a believer. If you're not, that's available to you, a saving grace at the foot of the cross. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 tells us, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. All grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, there's a lot of alls in this. You may abound in every good work. How can you be fueled by grace today? Let me give you a couple of questions to consider. Let, let's root out first the, the problem that you have. Question number one, 
What do you use to comfort yourself when things go bad or difficult? What do you use to comfort yourself when things go bad or difficult? I was asking this question to a friend this week, and he was very honest with me. He said, to be honest with you, when I'm not relying on the grace of God, you know what I do? I open my bank account, and I just look at it. And in that, I find a hope that in the moment feels very real, even though I know that it's false. Question number two, what preoccupies you? What do you daydream about? When you've got time and you've got space, what is it that your mind is constantly fixated on? Because that is what you are placing hope in. That is what you are grasping for. Rather than saying, God, give me my daily bread, give me my manna for a day, you're clinging at something. I was praying with somebody last week. Here's your third question. Could a car accident take your identity away? I was praying with somebody last week who came up on an accident and, and helped save the person's life, but they lost both their legs in the process. And I ask you, could a car accident take your identity away? Because if it could, then your identity is not rooted in Christ. If the loss of something, some ability, some function of yourself causes you to feel like you are no longer yourself or valuable, then your hope is hiding in something other than Christ. Can you remember a time when you overreacted about something that in hindsight wasn't that important? Probably a couple of us this morning. What caused your overreaction? Because whatever it was, it was pushing against your desire for comfort that is found somewhere other than the cross of Christ. And then finally, I'll put this. Early on in conversations, what do you want people to know about you? Meet somebody for the first time. What is it you're trying to slide in? What is it that you want to make sure? Is it how many kids you have? Is it where you work, what you do? Is it this or that or the other? What is it you try to slide into conversation? Because that is where you truly believe you are strong. No, being empowered by grace is better for three things. Number one, being empowered by grace is better because it's sustainable. Hebrews 13, verse 9. Uh, can y'all throw it up real quick? I didn't mark it. It'll be quicker if y'all do. I'll raise you. Ah. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good that the heart for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Not by food. And it's not just talking about food. It's by anything else that satisfies. Food, bottle, medicate, whatever it is that you would run to, it is good for the soul to be strengthened by grace. Be, now you can flip back. Being empowered by grace is, is a better way because it is sustainable. Why is it sustainable? Because I have infinite weaknesses. I don't have infinite energy, but I have infinite weakness. I don't have infinite wisdom, but I've got infinite foolishness. And that is the fuel for the grace of God. His power is, is infinite and my weakness is infinite. When those two things come together, I have a grace that is sustained because it is fueled by brokenness and not strength. And I've got that. We've got that in full supply. Number two, being empowered by grace is a better way because it makes us encouragers. Um, do you have that slide that has... All of those verses on you're not. I don't expect you to read these. You probably can't. They're teeny, right? These are the first 13 headings to every letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament. Okay, we flip to the next one. That's the word grace. There's not a letter that he wrote that didn't start with recognizing that his relationship with those people was bought by and sustained by a future expected grace. 
Being empowered by grace is a better way because it makes us encouragers. I had a girl come up to me when, uh, when we were having youth at the point. Her name was Miranda. And she walked up to me after a sermon. She said, Will, I'm so glad to hear that you still sin. I was like, time out. How long have you been coming here? Yes, I still sin. And she was like, I just didn't realize that Christians kept sinning. I, fi- I figured you got to a point. And I was like, oh my gosh, you've got to know this. Because if you don't know that you're going to continue to sin, you're not going to continue to go to God for grace daily. And you've got to do that if you're going to live for him. When we boast in our weakness, it gives room for other people to be weak. One of the biggest things going on in our culture right now is sexual identity. Not just what marriage is, but what male is and what female is. Can I, can I give you one, like, just thought? You may never have that conversation, but just one thought of how being empowered by grace makes us encouragers. Every last one of us, heterosexual, homosexual, whatever it was, struggled with sexual sin. Every one of us comes to that from a broken perspective. And when we can get on the even ground of saying, not I've got this all right and I've got this all figured out and you're so far from the Lord. When we can enter in and I can say, hey, I dated a girl for six years before I got married. I can talk to you about sexual sin. I can talk to you about brokenness. I can talk to you about weakness. Then we can enter in and we can meet with sinners the way Christ did, the way that Paul did. Being empowered by grace makes us encouragers. And finally, being empowered by grace is a better way because it ushers in real freedom. You don't have to hide. Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, they went into hiding as soon as their weakness and sin was found. But when we realize 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here comes a verse in Romans. When in Romans 8, 1, we realize there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, we don't have to hide our weaknesses anymore. All the more we can pull them up because the very failures that cause us to withdraw and hide actually display the endless nature of God's love. This means no fear of failure. This means no fear of pleasing men, no posturing. Do you know how cool it is to send somebody a text and not have to read it seven times to see what light you're casting yourselves in? Or look at a post and be like, did I do that just right? Or how? what are people going to think? Or this picture... And just be able to say, does it bring God glory? Yes, sin. Does it bring me glory? Yes, don't sin. It's easy. It's not that complicated. Living by grace really is simple. Allow yourselves to be as weak and vulnerable each day as you were when you first came to that cross. Because when we put our knee down at the foot of the cross, we never really pick it back up. If the band would go ahead and come up, I'm going to close this in prayer. And I'm going to pray Acts 20, 24. Let's pray together. Father, I, I just pray that we would be able to see the real grace of God. A positional grace that moves us from being a sinner into being a saint. But also a real grace that sustains us day in and day out. Father, I, I think of this verse in Acts And I just pray that we would not account our lives of any value nor as precious to ourselves if only we would finish our course and the ministry that we received from you to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. May your grace rescue us. May it hold us up. And may it push us forward. May we live and breathe and feast on this free gift of God. In Christ's name, amen.